Good morning. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. Colossians 1, or page 954, if you're using our Bibles here. I think we're all acquainted with the principle of sacrifice and reward, that just what life consists of is we make sacrifices for certain benefits. You go to work and make that sacrifice of time all week long for the reward of your paycheck, something you desire more. Students will actually lay down their phones and their social life to study to prepare for something called grades, or maybe their goal is acceptance into a certain college. Hunters will sit in a cold tree stand for the hope of the glory of that trophy buck or a a full freezer. Quilters and knitters endure stitch after tedious stitch that I do not understand, but for the glory of something they made and diet and fitness for hopefully better health or appearance. And it goes on and on. We get it, right? We make sacrifices for that which we value. What all those very good and most of them very necessary things have in common is that all of them have an expiration date. And so whether we reach our goal or whether our goals are halted incomplete, it's all for this life. As good as they are, as essential as they are. What we want to look at today in these verses is Paul's explanation of sacrifice for a reward that covers this life and eternity. What is worthy of our sacrifice for that which would benefit this life and the next? Verses 24 through 27, I want to read verse 27 first. Just kind of clue us into the uh, the end game, and then come back to verse twenty four. Verse twenty seven. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the reward. Now to verse twenty four. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let me try to give you a summary of this passage. There's a lot of phrases. It's one of Paul's trademark long sentences. He's saying essentially this, Paul says, So that Christians know the glorious privilege of Jesus dwelling in them forever. I'll pay the price. There's a sacrifice. My life will consist of paying a price so that Christians can experience and know the benefit of the privilege that Jesus dwells in them. And it's forever. So that's where this passage, I believe, is going. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Not too often do we put the words rejoice and suffering in the same sentence. I 
kind of wonder if any of us this week, uh, in a conversation, maybe even a Christian fellowship context, another believer someplace or in a group or something, did you, did you ever really make the statement, I just rejoice for what I'm suffering? I don't think I said that this week myself. So why did Paul rejoice? Is this, is this normal? Is, is Paul delusional? Is Paul exceptional? Let's think back a little bit about Paul's circumstances. Do you remember where Paul was when he wrote the book of Colossians? He was in jail, prison. Acts 28 describes it as a house arrest. He was there some two years. He didn't know it'd be that long, I'm sure, when it started. Like most trials, you don't know how long they are when you start them. But he ended up being there two years, and he is writing this to the church in Colossae during that span of time. He is there because of the gospel, and he is waiting trial before Caesar, and he is waiting actually for some bigwigs from Jerusalem. He's in Rome. He's waiting for some charges to come against him from the, 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 the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They're supposed to bring their accusations. And he was actually, I think, looking forward to defending the cause of Christ before Caesar. Evidently, they never showed up. And we find in the books of Second Timothy and Titus, we find, we find that there is, Paul was released from this imprisonment. And so he sat there waiting for something that never happened. And we, we might expect if he's writing a letter, he might write, please help me get out of here. <laughs> please pray that I'll... Actually, he doesn't. He, we'd expect him to be complaining. You know, I don't know why the Lord has me stuck here. I can't even use my gifts. I can't plant churches. I can't preach the gospel. Here I am doing nothing. I have no, long, no idea how long this is going to last. Lord, you're wasting my time and skills, and I've got prisonophobia. But he doesn't. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. How can he rejoice? There is a sacrifice with a reward. And the reward somehow is his understanding, his embracing of the glory of his relationship with Christ, that Christ indwells him. And he says, I do this, verse 24 for you. So it's not only a reward for him, but he so identifies with the church that I do this for you. There is something so intrinsically and eternally valuable about the church, which, by the way, exists on this side of death, that it is worth suffering for. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, if, if you read that and have some questions, you are not alone. Um, let's first of all try to settle what this cannot mean when he says, I fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. It cannot mean that Christ's sufferings were not enough to fully pay for our sins. It cannot mean that when Christ said it is finished, it actually was not finished. In fact, we know it would actually be illogical for Paul to say that because he has just said in verse 20 that, that God made peace through the blood of Christ. Done. Verse 22, he reconciled you by Christ's physical death. Done. Past tense. He clearly is not saying that there is something lacking in terms of Christ's sacrificial uh, payment for sins. Jesus paid it all. 
So what does it mean? It means that somehow Paul realizes that when he, Paul, is suffering for the sake of Christ, he is so united with Christ that Christ suffers with him. We share Christ's sufferings when we suffer because of him. Philippians 3, Paul would tell that church that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. He embraced the sacrifice because of his identity in his union with Christ. He would say to the Corinthians, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort as, as well. So you can start to see traces of why this joy would filter in because he was so identified with Christ that he knew he never suffered for Christ alone. He would suffer with Christ. There is something about our union with Christ, or as we saw at the end of this passage, Christ in you that is so absolutely true and valuable that Paul was never alone. When your spouse suffers, can you just ignore that? We, we shouldn't. We are joined in sickness and health. When one suffers, we both suffer. And so Paul is so fully aware of that, that he knows Christ suffers with him. So what was lacking? What does it mean that something was lacking? I think it simply means that the persecution that believers like Paul, like Colossians, like you and me, or Christians today, is not over. Persecution is not over. There will continue to be ramifications for identifying with Christ. I was reading a couple articles this week from the L.A. Times and New York Times, not exactly Christian sources. They were reporting on the persecution of Christians in China. Uh, This one from uh, actually was summarizing 2018 in a New York Times article. The government banned online sales of of the Bible burned crosses, demolished churches, and forced at least a half dozen places of worship to close. There is an unrelenting campaign against unofficial churches in China, which by some estimates serve as many as 30 million people. And another article was referencing the uh, uh, incarceration now of this pastor of the Early Reign Covenant Church, which uh, is a large church whose pastor was recently uh, sentenced to nine years in prison for subversion, which is basically undermining the regime with the gospel because of the gospel. We must realize that many Christian brothers and sisters are still filling up the sufferings of Christ. Paul, why would you suffer with Christ, whatever that cost? For you. Colossians, but then even bigger than that, for the church. Remember in a previous study, we talked about the difference between the local church and the universal church. The the universal church is all believers everywhere throughout this age from the day of Pentecost until Christ returns in the rapture. That's the universal church. Local church is like us or Colossae. Which one is he suffering for? Actually, he makes it clear in verse 24, both. For you, Colossians, probably thinking local, but then he says, for the sake of the body, which is the church. 
There is something so valuable about the relationship of a believer with Christ who is the head of the body, and so we are all part of his body. There is something so valuable about that. It is such a reward. He will sacrifice whatever it takes to benefit the body so that the body, like you and me, will understand and treasure our relationship with Christ and the glory of the gospel because, you see, what Christ is doing in drawing people to himself to create a body here is his eternal family there. And so what we really are as a church is the guardian of the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, just regular people like us, and we hold the glory of salvation and that message. It's the main thing God is doing on earth today. And we have the privilege of being part of that. So he said, I'll sacrifice whatever it takes for that. So what sacrifices do you feel that God wants you to make for the sake of the gospel? I don't think the purpose of this passage is that if we do not suffer like Christians in China, for example, that we're supposed to grovel in some kind of false guilt. God's circumstances for all are different. But if in some way today or someday you face more persecution than now, and some of you face more than I do, to embrace that and say the gospel's worth it. And in fact, as we sense God asking us to sacrifice in some way, voluntarily, not persecution, but voluntarily, to say the gospel is worth it, the church of Jesus Christ is worth it. And so for a growing believer in Christ, sacrifice should be considered normal. If it's anything you do to serve the cause of the gospel, and and most of you do, in some way, know this truth that you sacrifice something. You sacrifice time. The fact that you're here instead of a warm couch wrapped up in a blanket is a sacrifice because you care about growing in Christ, and here you are. You care about ministering to one another, and here you are. If you're going to serve him in some way, it means you know nights of the week or phone calls or efforts or reaching out, taking the initiative, courage that you don't normally have to be involved in someone's life, there is voluntary sacrifice all the time. Financial sacrifices. The church has been blessed in so many ways by so many people sacrificing in that way. There's a cost. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? Because what Christ was about to do in establishing the church who would steward and hold the treasure of the gospel was fully worth it. Some of you are maybe following the journey of our missionaries, Rhett and Stacy Staus, uh, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, this past week, they finally were able to move into their home in the tribal village of the Koval people of Papua New Guinea. The goal is to communicate to them the gospel that we're talking about here today. The investment on their part particular has been big and long. Several years of missionary training, and then they were living with us several years as they raised a team of partners. And then it's been several years that they've been there learning, first of all, national language, and then developing relationships to 
form a partnership. So there's three couples who are going to go into this tribal area. Selecting those partners, selecting a tribal group to go to, and now the last chunk of this past year, building homes there, building them themselves as they develop relationships. So now finally, several years, several years, plus several years, they're able to move in and begin a process of learning yet another language, unwritten, to establish literacy, friendship, know the culture, to be able to translate the Bible, to communicate the gospel message that is laying on our pages each day. It's worth it. And what we hold here in our scriptures and what we experience here as a church family is worth it. And that's why it's a privilege that we make sacrifices here as well to support Stouses there or Keefs in Paraguay or the Berglunds in Indonesia or Tim and Sis who are part of us who will are, are on that journey to also serve in that way in our other mission. There's just... That's, that's one aspect of it. The other is the sacrifices that you and I make because we care about the gospel and we are involved in other people's lives and, and we take courage to, to redevelop relationships where we can communicate the gospel and we serve in different ways for the glory of the gospel. It'll always cost. You know, as I see Paul's joy... I just wonder if sometimes our, our struggle emotionally with complaining and discontent and moodiness is, is it partially because we're not focused on the primary purpose for which God has placed us here? And that as we would invest our effort and our priorities, we would find the kind of joy Paul experienced. He said, I rejoice in what I suffered for you, for the church. Paul now explains his particular privilege as the mouthpiece of God at a very pivotal time in history. Verse 25, I have become its servant, the servant of the church, the body of Christ, By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. I'm the church's servant. Because there was information not yet given. And I'm here called or commissioned by God to present the word of God in its fullness. Something wasn't yet done. You see, the Bible wasn't complete as Paul was writing, because he's writing the Bible, right? Colossians is in our Bible. The New Testament wasn't complete. So Paul is writing 30 years or so after Jesus, and yet the Colossians had only known about Christ probably about 10 years or less when Epaphras, one of theirs, probably heard it while in Ephesus where Paul was teaching it. So Paul said, I realize I am responsible to bring new information. That is my privilege and my calling and my task. What is this new revelation? Verse 26. And this is where we start to understand why the cost is worth this reward or benefit. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, 
but is now disclosed to the saints. So there was something of the word of God that was not yet completely revealed. And he calls it the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And this term mystery is not a spooky kind of word uh, in the first century. It simply means something hidden. And in this case, something hidden now revealed and no longer a mystery. It's a revealed mystery. Paul explains it as a mystery. This is a common term also for some uh, false religions of the day. I don't think Paul was necessarily identifying with those things at all because the point of those religions, those mystery religions, was that they uh, kept things hidden because that, that, that was their appeal. And so you had to become uh, initiated into these religions and then you would get to know supposedly more of the, the mysteries. And there are, there are some religious type things, organizations today that has various orders. You must go deeper and deeper and deeper and then you, then you get to know the inside truth. But Paul is saying, what I've learned, what I, what I received from God is not something to be kept hidden. It's supposed to be broadly proclaimed to everybody. Everybody. But it was a mystery, and it had to be hidden in previous generations because it was about who? It was about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ had not yet come. Not that the Old Testament was hiding the truth of Jesus Christ, but you can't tell about Jesus Christ in particular until he's here. So instead, there were some 300 prophecies about Christ that we can find now, looking back retroactively into the Old Testament, that were fulfilled in Jesus. We see the promises. We see the purpose of Jesus. But he says, now we know Jesus, and we know who he is. Secret has been revealed. Many of you know that recently we added a grandson to the family tree. And my son and daughter-in-law, who you know, had a name picked out, but would they tell us? No. Not until he was born. And then the secret was out, and they were—they plastered the name on Facebook so friends around the world could see the name of this new little baby boy. It's a secret until it's time to be revealed. And you could say there was a necessary birthday of the gospel. But now Christ has come and everybody is supposed to know the mystery kept hidden but now disclosed to the saints, believers like us. To them, verse 27, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. If Paul had underlining in the Greek text, the word Gentiles would be underlined. He has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's such a great verse that probably underlined in capital letters everything. Let's unpack this. Why was it so unique to be shown to the Gentiles? Gentiles, or Greeks, means essentially in the New Testament, people who are not Jewish by race or culture. Were the Gentiles the focus of God in the Old Testament? No. The Jews were. The Gentiles could come to God, but to come to God, they had to come to the Jewish people because the one God had revealed himself to the people of Israel 
and it was there that he was known. It was his law. It was his temple. There was one place to come. God chose Abraham to launch this new nation, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The first Jew, Abraham, was actually not a Jew, right? But God said to him, I'm going to make of you a new nation. Abraham's son is Isaac. Isaac's son is Jacob. The other name for Jacob is Israel, and that's how they came to be known as Israelites, because then from the person of Jacob, there were these 12 tribes. And so God is revealing himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he gave the law to Moses, Moses from the tribe of Levi. But yet it's all Jewish. And Moses, under the wisdom and guidance of God, the book of Exodus, develops the tabernacle, a place to worship for the Jews. Then it was the 12 tribes of Israel. As you see them wandering in the wilderness, God takes care of them, and they go into the land, and he provides for them, and he gives them the promised land. Eventually, after the time of the judges, you have the kings, and so Saul, David, and Solomon rule over the kingdom of Israel that God expands and blesses, and God allows Solomon to build this incredible temple where now he would be, God would be worshipped in this amazing temple, and he was for some years, but then there were actually centuries of disobedience which culminated in God allowing the Babylonians to come and take them in judgment. But as we recently studied in the book of Ezra, God still has his hand on Israel, the Jewish people, and they come back and they rebuild the temple. And his focus was on the Jews. Finally, God sends Jesus Christ, who was Jewish. And Jesus Christ establishes the church in Jerusalem, And it was a Jewish church. And it was 3,000 Jews, mostly, presumably, that were saved. And it was a Jewish church. It was all about the Jews. But then something happened as the church began to progress. Because Jesus had said, you'd go, you're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. And Jesus said that you're going to start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and where? The uttermost parts of the earth. So how's that going to happen? And so God allowed a persecution in the book of Acts. And in chapter 8, they, they, they are pushed out forcibly and they go into other places. And, 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 and Philip is preaching the gospel in other places. And in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter, and he was a Jew's Jew. And he was this key leader in the Jerusalem church at the beginning. And and Peter receives this revelation from God in which there's a sheet that comes down. And there's all kinds of unclean animals that Jews were not to touch. And God told him, arise and eat. He says, I don't do that. No. And it was God's way of saying to him, I want you to begin to understand that I have called the Gentiles to be part of the church. And so in that conversation... Part of the next move of that after that vision is that he gets to talk to Cornelius, a Jew. And Cornelius and his friends become believers, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Paul, or rather Peter, realizes in Acts 10, he says, Now I realize there's no favoritism with God, and that the Jews and the Gentiles are part of the church. Even then, it was so hard culturally, racially for Peter to wrap his mind around that, that in Galatians 2 Peter has, rather Paul has to rebuke Peter because Peter still is seeing the Jewish people as superior somehow in the church okay, they're part of us, but you know, they kind of have to be second rate, we're up here 
It's like, it's like it's so hard to shed this idea even of the Gentiles in relation to Judaism. If you, if you have like a map in the back of your Bible of first century temple grounds, you'll see that there is the temple and there's the immediate area around the temple and there's a great big rectangle around it called the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile and you worshiped the true God of Israel during the time of Christ and the apostles, you had to stay here. And there's like a line and you couldn't go over that line if you were a Gentile. That's like if we had church this morning and only the Dutch and Luxembourgers could come in this room. Everybody else has to stay out there and you can watch it on TV, but got to be Dutch or Luxembourg to be in this room. Something wrong about that, isn't there? And so what What God had in mind was that as he formed the church, he would put Jew and Gentile on equal status. And it was mind-blowing to the people of God, the Jews. But now this new equal status was a mystery no more. So as he told the Ephesians, Paul says, by revelation there was made known to me the mysteries. God had to like, Say this to me personally, slowly, read my lips, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. you got to be kidding, Paul. Really? Paul says, yes. Equal status. And I'm guessing that probably everybody in this room is a Gentile. But the privilege is that we are now on equal status as the people of God because we are part of the body of Christ. And Paul felt so very privileged to, in a sense, have the divine scoop on this mystery. This is new, he said. And he said, I don't want you to ever take for granted the privilege that you are part of this great news. The mystery... The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is no exclusive scoop anymore. It's in our pages of our scripture. But do you know that what we know as believers in Christ, that we have eternal salvation, unity with Christ in the body, and a forever home with Christ in his presence, is still brand new to so many. So while it's totally open, yet in so many ways, it is still hidden. Because so few people seem to understand that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But really, it's then our privilege as individual believers, as a church family, to realize that we are the guardians of the gospel. We are the ones who understand the amazing grace of God in salvation. I've considered it a privilege all these years to be a part of a church family placed by God in a community where we can communicate grace. We are saved by grace because so many are still convinced that If indeed there is a God, and there's a lot of belief that there is a true God, that somehow God has to be appeased or impressed by our goodness to let us into heaven. 
And that's a lie. It's a diabolical lie. It's a lie that, that God has called us by his word and by his grace to address. Why we share the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, good news. Of what? Of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The same thing we've been reading in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And it is the gospel, the good news of the glory of who Christ is, what he did, the grace of God. That is what is continually hidden and that we are called to communicate. How does the God of this world hide this information or blind people from this information? Several ways. One is secularism. Uh, Particularly uh, in our American and the Western culture, much secularism, humanism, where in fact you rule out the existence of God, and if there is no God, then Jesus is irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you can prove that he actually existed. He's irrelevant if there really is no God. There's There's no eternal value to the existence of Jesus. Another means by which the gospel is hidden, or blind, that Satan blinds people, is through false religions, False religion could really be defined as any, any religion that does not hold that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. But if Jesus is not God, salvation cannot be through Jesus. If he's not God, how, yeah, then he can't, there's no saving value to that. And that's why the, the blindness pervades even into what we could call inadequate Christianity. Just because there's a cross on a building doesn't prove that there's an understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ who hung on that cross. So inadequate Christianity is any group that would, or, or teaching that would, would say that salvation is not through faith alone in Christ alone. In other words, they've added something that is human merit. Somehow we appease God. We, we have to impress him. We have to do enough good works to somehow earn our own salvation, which completely cuts the legs out from under the reality of the glory of the grace of the gospel of Jesus. And so this is why we share the gospel. This is why sacrifices are worth it to communicate the gospel. So who do you know for whom the gospel is still hidden? Is that a priority in your life, to build relationships, to invest your time, your service, whether it's setting up chairs or some role here, to keep your mindset, I do this for the gospel, or whether it's a conversation you have face-to-face in a coffee shop or a break room about the gospel, because It's that important. It's that valuable. Specifically, he says, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope, and New Testament hope always means confidence, the confidence of glory. You're different than the unbelieving world if you're a believer. You're alive. Thinking through this phrase, 
Christ in you. What does it mean? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul said, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? And, and how often this past week, or did, did any of us, except for me studying it, think about Christ is in me? That's incredible. My life is completely absorbed in Christ. If, it says that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It's like we're, we're never alone. That's why in this task it says, go make disciples of all nations. I'll be with you always. Of course he is. We are, we are intrinsically linked to Christ. Don't you realize that, Paul said? Romans 8.10, but if indeed, and he is, Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit's alive because of righteousness. So this body is dying. If I'd ask for a show of hands for everybody that's dying, we should all have our hands up. <laughs> this past April, as many of you know, both of my parents passed away. And as they were uh, approaching these last couple of years, they, they knew kind of where they were in life. Every evening, they sang to each other just before they fell asleep. The song, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. With, with their older voices, it was the most beautiful song I can ever remember hearing. Because they knew that their hope of glory was completely encased in their understanding of who Jesus was. And so their body was dying because of a sinful world, but their spirit was alive, and they, are, they were never more alive than when they were no longer with us. Galatians 2.20, so what does that do for us today? I'm crucified with Christ, Paul said. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So my life is so linked with his that I can picture myself throughout a day. Christ is in me. I am not alone ever. Or Ephesians 3, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. So the Holy Spirit indwells us as, as well. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's no competition between the spirit and, and Christ. But so Christ is, in this term dwelling, is not just that he's there, but he's made himself at home. And we recognize the indwelling Christ, the indwelling spirit. We are recognized we have a supernatural capacity. We are never without the spiritual power to endure or accomplish or be what God wants us to be. We are the indwelling Christ. Are you enjoying that privilege? It will take intentional thinking of the fact that our life is so linked with Christ. These are not natural thoughts. There are plenty of things that happen around us that will occupy our mind naturally. This is supernaturally. So are we focused on these eternal privileges or just earthly desires? We all know we're guilty. I enjoy a lot of things in life. I enjoy sports. Packers, Badgers, Bucks, Brewers. I read sports, watch games. Ask Priscilla, she knows I enjoy that stuff. I enjoy my motorcycle. I can't wait for it to warm up so I can get back out on it. I enjoy the home we live in. There's stuff, there's hobbies, there's projects, all part of life. can all be a wonderful gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. 
But we do have to keep it in perspective that everything in this life is kind of like a big game of Monopoly. You pay monop- play Monopoly and you got this wad of cash. Kind of fun. You buy stuff with it. You're investing. and You end up with these little greenhouses or the red hotels. And you kind of get into the game and, and if you land on somebody else's stuff, you cringe because you've got to give out this money. And then they land on your stuff and they can give you money and you're delighted. And, and you, you just, you just, it just feels like winning. But when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. And you realize it's just a game. Now, this life is more than a game. I get it. But we have to understand the eternal perspective. What feels like winning is not real riches. Because it goes back in the box. But to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that is something. That is riches that is rich now. And it's rich forever. And so the glory of our salvation through Christ is personal. I can know my sins are forgiven. I can know that I'll be in heaven the moment I die. It's personal, but it's also corporate. Because when it says Christ in you, it is, Paul said, I do this for the church, the body of Christ. And so God cares about me. God cares about us corporately. This church, part of the church, but it's because of the value of the gospel. And so it's personal and it's, and it's corporate, it's church, but it's also eternal. And that we are involved in and we commit to and we make sacrifices for true riches. Christ in you, the confidence of eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, we need our perspective changed day by day, moment by moment, trial by trial, joy and blessing by joy and blessing. We need to think eternally. I pray that you would grant us the spiritual uh, understanding for which your word was designed. In Jesus' name, amen.